We are in the middle of a sermon series on singleness, marriage, and parenting. We began a journey through 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We looked at singleness last week. We're going to be looking at marriage this week. Um, allow me to read the portions. We're going to look at two passages from 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7 is a book in the New Testament of the Bible. Uh, chapter 7, verses 1 to 5, and verses 29 to 31. Allow me to read this out for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 to 5. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation of sexual immorality, immorality uh, each man should have his own wife and each woman her husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement, for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Verses 29 to 31. 29. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy... As, as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. This is the word of the Lord. We're journeying through 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We looked at singleness last week. If you missed that sermon I would really, really encourage you to, to go back and watch it on YouTube or listen to it. It's available. One of the key conversations, uh, we, we had several conversations on, on singleness last week. I was tempted to dive into it all over again. I won't. Um, this week, we're going to journey through 1 Corinthians chapter 7 again. And we're going to look at marriage. Um, I wanted to draw out three principles for us on marriage from today's uh, passage from scripture. First, deep communion. Second, good and godly mutual self-denial. And third, a greater vision. Three principles. Deep communion, a good and godly mutual self-denial, and a, great, a greater vision. Let's start with the first thing. Deep communion. If you, if you look at verses 3 and 4 in the passage we read, one of the things that the Apostle Paul, who wrote this, is clearly, clearly, clearly saying is this. Please have sex in your marriage. Husbands and wives, keep making love. Don't stop having sex in your marriage. Verse 3. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. Isn't that a weird thing to say? Isn't that, isn't, that, isn't that obvious? Isn't that expected that married couples will have 
sex. Sure, the frequency may vary from couple to couple. The frequency may vary from season to season in life. But married couples will have sex. That's a given. Isn't that obvious? Do, you re- do, you re- do we really need an apostle to tell married couples, please continue having sex in your marriage? What is Paul doing here? Why is he doing this? Why is he saying this? Why is he writing this in a formal letter to be read out in, in the church? There's a reason that Paul is stating the obvious. If you remember last week, in the background, I mentioned that the culture in the city of Corinth was highly promiscuous. It was, as a culture, it was very permissive sexually. And, and, and the people in the church at Corinth were responding to the culture around them in two wrong ways. Many of them were giving into the culture and indulging in sexual promiscuity. Singles were having sex before marriage. In that culture, it was acceptable for married men to have sex outside of marriage. And we see Paul stepping in and very strongly rebuking this lifestyle in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and chapter 6. Now, while one group of people were indulging sinfully in the culture standard of sexuality, another people in the church at Corinth had swung to the other extreme. In, in, in response to the promiscuity in the culture around them, some men and women in the church at Corinth had come to the conclusion that sex, even in marriage, was sinful, dirty, undesirable. And these people, this group of people, and they must have been an influential group, they had wrongly concluded that abstinence from sex in marriage is a way to grow in holiness. To grow spiritually, you had to renounce even sex, in, sex even in marriage, they argued. And so some couples, as a result of their uh, extreme unbiblical stance, had stopped having sex. And Paul had to write a letter to correct that. Makes me wonder if, if some man or woman in desperation had sent an SOS to Paul, Apostle Paul text message, my spouse is, is saying having sex is unholy. Please, can you, can you step in? Can you do something, please? Pastor, please help. And, and so Paul had to kind of step in and he had to say, no, 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 don't practice abstinence in marriage. Now, sex within marriage is beautiful, it is holy, it is a gift from God, so please don't stop. Grow in the gift of sexuality within marriage. But why? Why is Paul so concerned that the couples, married couples in the church at Corinth should, should keep having sex? Why is this a concern? Why is this an apostolic concern. Think of Paul's life. He is busy planting churches all over the known world at that point in time. He is going on mission trips. He is overseeing many churches he's planted. He's traveling like crazy and wherever he goes, he's getting persecuted. He's getting flogged. He's getting jailed. He's being shipwrecked. He's being bitten by poisonous snakes. He's going without food by his own admission. He doesn't have a coat to keep himself warm in the cold. And in the midst of all his troubles, 
Paul is so concerned that married couples in Corinth are not having sex. This should be the least of his worries. So why is Paul doing this? You see, Paul understood that sex was an important way in which God designed a married couple to grow in their communion with one another. True, joyful, wholesome, and intimate communion between husband and wife is God's design for marriage. Apart from joyful communion between husband and wife, no marriage can can truly flourish and be a blessing to the world. Good, self-giving, God-honoring sex within a marriage is an important way in which the husband and wife grow in their communion with each other. Why is communion so important? What's the big deal about communion? Why does God want the husband and the wife to be in deep and joyful communion with one another? Is that the end in itself? Is that all that God wants? Communion between the husband and the wife in the earthly marriage is designed to point us to the greater, to the infinitely more beautiful communion between Christ and his bride, us, the church. God's design for marriage absolutely includes the intimacy, the communion that the husband and wife enjoy with one another to point them to a greater communion to come. And so even if we live in Mumbai, even if we are all busy with our careers and with our studies, not studies, because at least in Indian culture, students don't get married, please. (laughs) Even if we are really busy with our careers, God does not want our marriages to be something that's just swept along by the flow of life. God does not want our marriages to be a place where the husband and wife just about coexist. God does not want our marriages to be devoid of companionship. God desires every one of our marriages to reflect the deep, joyful, and wholesome communion that the church will one day enjoy with Christ, her bridegroom. Communion. Communion. Are you experiencing communion in your marriage? There's some chairs here. Feel free to come on up. A couple of you, right here. That's all right. In the culture we live in, communion is such a rare thing. In a busy, busy, busy city like Mumbai, many couples are sadly living in a union that is often lacking in communion. Any marriages, sadly, are a union that is lacking in communion. Communion is the deep, restful coming together of souls. 
Communion is slow. Communion is tender. Communion is an unhurried sharing or exchanging of intimate thoughts, emotions, and feelings with one another. Communion is inviting your spouse into your soul, bearing your heart, lowering your pretenses, inviting your spouse to come in and see your heart and see all there is to see. Come, see my fears. Come, see my joys. See my hopes. Come, see my concerns. This is true communion. In marriage, soul communion, soul communion is the naked bearing of our souls to one another, just as sexual communion is the bearing of our bodies to one another. And both are deeply interconnected. And so, if we're constantly tired and, and worn out by the pressures of a demanding career, or other, other preoccupations, it's hard for any couple to grow in soul communion or in sexual communion. How are our marriages faring if you're married? If you're single, desiring marriage, what would you like your marriage to be? Is there also communion in the union of our marriage? Are we sacrificing joyful communion for a lonely pursuit of career success or whatever else it may be? Is that what we want for our marriages? You know, as I said earlier, Paul is deeply concerned about communion between husband and wife because he knows that biblically this communion between husband and wife is supposed, is designed to point us to the greater communion between Christ and us the church. And so in that context, we do need to ask this union and communion question, not just in our marriages, but also in our relationship with Christ Jesus. The moment we are, we are saved, we are baptized, we are all united with Christ. Our salvation leads us to deep union with Christ. All of us who are believers are now in union with Christ Jesus. But is our union with Christ translating into a communion with Him? Or is our relationship with Christ Jesus one of union, but often lacking in communion? And so that's the first principle that I wanted to draw out for us from this passage in terms of what the Apostle Paul is exhorting couples in the church at Corinth. Communion. That's the first principle of a good, godly marriage. The second principle of a godly marriage that this passage is inviting us to see is a good and godly mutual self-denial. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is a very good example of how we should read the Bible and how we should not. You know, if you read, if you listen to last week's sermon, and if you look at only 1 Corinthians chapter 7 in isolation, you might walk away with the idea that singleness is better than marriage. Because 1, chap 1 Corinthians chapter 7 makes a strong, compelling case for singleness, a case for singleness, biblical singleness, that, that the church 
um, in many cultures has often walked away from. But we shouldn't read just 1 Corinthians 7. God's given us the fullness of the Bible as well. So we've got to see everything in, in, in full perspective. So if you also read Ephesians chapter 5, Apostle Paul there has also celebrated earthly marriage, saying that the earthly marriage bears a likeness, bears a semblance, is pointing to the marriage between Christ and the church, his bride. So don't just read one passage or one verse and, and form any opinion about any doctrine or, or what God says. We must read the full perspective. And the Bible always holds many things in tension. That tension is intentional. That tension is good. For example, there is a tension between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. There is a tension between evangelism and and predestination. And as we are seeing in 1 Corinthians 7, there is a tension between singleness and marriage. This tension is good for our souls. Have you spotted the tension in the passage we read today? There's some really sharp tension here. Let me walk you through the passage and and invite you to see this tension. I mean, this seems to be an almost irreconcilable uh, tension here. First, in verse 3, Paul urges couples not to stop having sex. Uh, Verse 3, the husband should give to her wife the conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. But then in verse 5, Paul calls them to deny one another in mutual agreement for a short time so they can devote themselves to prayer. That's verse 5. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. And then in verse 29, Paul says the unthinkable. He says, he seems to say the exact opposite. Verse 29, he says, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has come. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. You you see the tension building here? What's happening here? Which of these three is Paul communicating? Which of these three is is correct? Should husbands husbands and wives always enjoy sexual and soul communion or... Should they pause their communion for some season and deny themselves a mutual agreement so that they can pray and devote themselves to God and serving God? Or, as Paul says in verse 29, should they live as if they are not married so they can devote themselves wholly to mission because the time is short? The Bible is calling us to do all three of this in the same chapter. So which one of this is true? What should married couples do. You feel the tension in this. So which of these three should we do? All three. All three are equally true. All three are equally relevant. All three are equally important. To really understand what's happening here, I'm going to use an illustration from space travel. If you're a science fiction buff like I sometimes am, you'll you'll track with me. Even otherwise, I'll explain where I'm going with this. In space, distances are huge. So no spacecraft can ever carry enough fuel for long interstellar voyages. So in many movies, interstellar is one example. And in real life, 
spacecrafts use the gravitational pull of a nearby planet to propel or slingshot themselves over great distances and at great speeds. So as planets orbit around the sun, they have great kinetic energy and a spacecraft is directed behind the planet at an angle so that it is pulled by the planet's gravity and then speeding it up and sending it off in a, in a tangent towards the destination. So the spacecraft basically uses the gravitational pull of the planet to be slung shot, to slingshot itself into the desired destination. So the spacecraft moved towards a planet not to go to the planet itself, but to merely use it as a slingshot to go further into space. So this spacecraft must not come, must, must get close enough to the planet, but it must not get too close. It must come close enough, but not too close. It needs to be very careful here. If it gets too close to the planet, then it's going to be pulled in by the planet's gravity, and it's going to be grounded on the planet forever. You need to get just close enough to the planet without being pulled in. Deep, joyful communion between husband and wife in the earthly marriage is like the gravitational power of the planet. This deep, joyful communion is not the whole end in itself, but this communion in marriage is what powers us for a higher, greater purpose of serving the church, serving Christ, the church, and society. We must enjoy this beautiful communion, joyful communion that God has called husbands and wives into, but just enough so that the power of this communion in our temporary biological marriage can give us the strength to serve the eternal spiritual family, the church. See, just like that spacecraft, if we, if we enjoy this communion of our earthly marriage way too much, if we make this communion everything, if we make this communion the ultimate, we will be sucked in and be stuck on this planet forever. But if we see communion in this earthly marriage as a flyby to a greater purpose, then we can soar into a higher orbit, just like the spacecraft. God has designed the earthly marriage as a flyby to power us on and toward the greater and infinitely more blissful union and wedding of us, the church, the bride with Christ, our bridegroom. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul is teaching the church at, at Corinth. Communion in the earthly marriage is important. Don't compromise on it. Don't think that's unholy. But also at the same time, remember that the earthly marriage is just a flyby. We are pilgrims, mere pilgrims. Enjoy the joyful communion that the earthly marriage brings. But don't get stuck in it. Let the earthly marriage propel you to a greater purpose 
of mission and serving the spiritual family, the church. Which is why Paul holds all of those three statements in tension together. If you're a young couple, or if you're a young family, or if you're an old family, I, I, I'm sure you're experiencing this tension, right? We looked at singleness last week with singles, you know, more singles, but that's, that's, not, that's not true entirely these days, do have time. We've seen that in New City as well. When singles get married, couples, they begin to ha- be able to have less time to serve Christ, to serve the church. And your kids come along, the kids grow older, and this tension that, I don't think there's any couple who does not feel the tension. This tension of balancing God's call on our life upon the earthly, temporary, biological family and the eternal, spiritual family, the church, and God's call on every one of our lives to mission. And in a city like Mumbai, this tension is even more pronounced. We've got to acknowledge this tension. How much time do we invest in our biological family? How much time do we invest in our spiritual family? And I don't think there's any couple who ever gets the balance right. Till Christ comes again, that balance is never going to be right. But it's important we be aware of the tension. Some of us are naturally inclined to kind of over-obsess on the biological family, to place a disproportionately large importance on it, and, and just keeping the spiritual family as a distant second. On the other hand, there are some others who are vulnerable of kind of focusing so much on, on, on other things, ministry, the church, and all of that, at the expense of the biological family. Both are wrong. And we can't ever find the perfect balance, but we must learn to acknowledge the tension and live in dependence of on Christ in that tension. To be aware of the tension and to allow that tension to draw us to greater dependence on Christ. A wrong method of legalism is to just put five rules. Monday to Friday, you give to your family, or you give to your career. Saturday, you give to your family. Sunday, you give to church, right? Uh, or, you know, put, put down rules. Put on put rules and, and feel justified in those rules. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not what we do. It's what Christ has done in our place as our substitute. And we are called to depend on him. So I want to invite us to acknowledge this tension of life in Mumbai. If we don't acknowledge this, this tension, this reality, we will never be the city on a hill that God has called the church to be. We can never be in the world but not of it as Christ has sent us out to be. We have to acknowledge this tension. And as a community, we must be having conversations with one another, loving one another, encouraging one another, exhorting one another, and as the Bible calls us to lovingly rebuking one another when any of us fall out of sync here, when, when of us, any of us become too imbalanced in this. And so that's the second principle that I wanted to draw out for us from this passage. First was communion, but second is, is, is a mutual self-denial, acknowledging that earthly marriage is just a flyby. 
to the larger goal of Christ, our union with Christ himself. That brings us to the third and the last thing I want to draw as I close this morning. A greater vision. A greater vision. Verse 31, the last phrase in verse, verse 31. Paul says, for the present form of this world is passing away. The present form of this world is passing away. Have you ever noticed that the Bible begins with a marriage and ends with a marriage? At the very beginning of the Bible is the first marriage. The marriage between Adam and Eve. At the very end of the Bible is the last marriage. The marriage between Christ, the bridegroom Messiah, and the church, his bride, which is us. The first marriage failed. Adam and Eve sinned. They blamed each other. One of their children killed another. And every earthly marriage since then carries the weight and the curse of their sin. And that is why Christ, God, the Father, sent Christ, his son, as the bridegroom Messiah. You see, Jesus is not only our Messiah. He's not only our Savior. He is our bridegroom savior. The fact that he is our bridegroom Messiah talks us, tells us about the intimacy that we have in our union with Christ Jesus. And as Paul says, the present fallen, broken, sinful, cursed world is passing away. Minute by minute, it's passing away because Christ died on the cross and rose again from the dead and ascended into heaven so that one day he would come back again and make this broken world beautiful all over again. This is the narrative of scriptures. Christ came, he died on the cross, paid the punishment for every one of your sins and mine, took upon his body, the punishment of everyone who sinned but would come to believe in him. And at the cross, he bore the fury of the Father, the just, righteous, and holy anger of God the Father for every sin of everyone who believes. And when the sin, when the price was fully paid, the sentence was finished. Christ Jesus rose again from the dead, ascended into heaven, is now seated, seated at the right hand of God the Father. And as we wait for Christ to come back again, we can be sure that the old world in its present form is passing away. A new heaven and a new earth and a new world is coming. Every old and earthly marriage is passing away. A new marriage, a better marriage is coming. The old and broken marriage between husband and wife, earthly husband and wife is going and a new and perfect and eternal marriage between Christ and us, his bride, is coming. Every one of us, we need a greater vision of this marriage. We need a greater vision of the marriage to come. 
we do need to stop considering the old imperfect marriage that we all have as the ultimate and we need to start longing for our wedding with the lamb of god as the ultimate we need a greater vision of marriage if you read the last two chapters of the bible revelation chapter 21 and 22 it describes how the poor things of the present broken world will one day be replaced by the perfect things of the new world when christ comes again so if you look at revelation chapter 21 22 it says there is no no temple in the new heavens and the new earth there's no temple in the new world because god himself is our temple being intimately present with his people or if you read those two chapters you see there is no sun or no moon in the new world because god himself will be the source of light for us in eternity similarly there is no marriage between man and woman in the new world because Christ himself will be our eternal bridegroom if you are in a deeply fulfilling and happy marriage remember that the marriage to come is infinitely more blissful if however you are in an unhappy marriage remember that there will be no more sorrow in the age to come if you're married and sadly separated or if you're married and sadly abandoned remember that no one can ever separate you from the love of Christ allow me to close with the words of 19th century scottish pastor and and hymn writer uh, horatius bonner he, he wrote a short poem allow me to read that for us the world is passing like a flower beautiful very beautiful fragrant very fragrant are the summer flowers but they wither away so fades the world before our eyes when we are looking at it admiring it behold it is gone no trace is left of all its loveliness but a little death little dust oh man oh woman can you feed on flowers can you dote on that which is but for an hour you were made for eternity and only that which is eternal can be your portion your resting place the things that perish with the using only mock our longings they cannot fill you even if they filled they cannot abide mortality is written on all things here immortality belongs only to the world to come to that new heavens and new earth wherein dwells righteousness let us pray 
Father, we worship you, Lord. Uh, uh, Lord, we, we acknowledge that the gospel calls us to live in a new paradigm that only Christ can enable us to live in. To be in the world, but not of the world. To enjoy communion and marriage, deep, joyful communion and marriage, but also to remember that this is just a flyby to the greater union between Christ and the church. To live in this tension between loving and serving and faithfully giving ourselves to a biological family and at the same time loving, serving, and faithfully giving ourselves to the spiritual family, the church. And so, Lord, we want to repent and say we've failed in every way. We have swung to sinful errors at both extremes. And this morning, we acknowledge that in our own strength, we are not capable of living out your design for us. But we know that when we come to you in meekness and brokenness and humility and repentance, you will fill us with your strength. You will forgive us and you will transform us. Uh, so this morning, Lord, as we move into communion, as we partake, as we feast on the body of Christ, the bread, and as we drink of the blood of Christ, the, the, the wine that is served at the Lord's Supper, we pray this means of grace will empower us, strengthen us to be transformed in Christ Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.